the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. You need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great uh, day in church yesterday, we did. We were absolutely packed. It was a, a really, really good weekend. Uh, pray people got saved at your church. Everybody that got saved yesterday uh, means we're one person closer, one Gentile closer to Jesus coming for his church. And for my money, that can't happen quickly enough. Uh, tonight, here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be having our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. So you can bring your whole family uh, with child care for the younger kids. So uh, that's at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch on calvarysa.com. Uh, Jocelyn Makasadia will be teaching tonight. Uh, they are in First John. And um, it's always that's such a wonderful book. Um, so that's all tonight at 7 o'clock. Well, let's get to questions that have been sent in while we await any phone calls. Here is our first question. Uh, and this one comes from our email inbox. It is anonymous. Uh, hello, Pastor Ron. I pray all is well. Thank you. Uh, he or she says, I've been reading the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, uh, verse 36 reads, And now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city, whereof ye say, uh, it shall be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon by the sword, and by famine, and by the pestilence, that's verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, uh, whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place and cause them to dwell safely. My question is this. Is this future prophecy? I thought Israel was already in the land. Why would God tell Jeremiah he would bring them back to this place? These verses sound as if they will happen in the future, because right now, with all of the tension over there, this has not happened yet. Please give your thoughts or comments. Thank you for your program. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really blessed to be able to do this show, Anonymous. Thank you very much for asking. Um, I'm also, and I've been saying this for a couple of weeks, I'm also in the book of Jeremiah in my personal reading, and I'm maybe just a few chapters ahead of you. So uh, all of this is pretty simple. Um, uh, they're in the land, but remember, God is telling them through uh, the prophet that 
uh, he is going to give them over to Babylon. They are at this point under siege. The the defeat is um, uh, clearly um, on the doorstep, and uh, he's simply telling them, you need to go. Um, serve the king there. This is going to be a time we know they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And so then he's going to bring them back. Now, prophecy, and this sometimes is a little bit difficult to explain, but prophecy always has uh, both short-term and long-term fulfillment. So it's very important. Um, The verses uh, that you're talking about are bleak. There doesn't seem to be much hope, but God always provides hope. Now, here's what he's doing. He's affirming that he's going to keep every promise. Jeremiah made the right choice to buy the land. That's the field in Anathoth. That was God's way of demonstrating that he is going to bring them back, that the land would belong to them. And obviously here, there is both there's both short-term and long-term fulfillment. Now, God did gather a remnant. Remember, at the end of the 70 years captivity in Babylon, only 50,000 of the Jews went back. Uh, so he gathered a remnant. God is always dealing with remnants. And uh, they went back to Israel. Uh, you can read about that in Nehemiah, in Ezra, um, um, Zechariah, there's others. But in the last days, the times that he was talking about in chapter 31, uh, when the entire people will return in victory, uh, God will be their God and they will be his people. That goes all the way down the corridor of time and space to the very end. So there is long-term and short-term fulfillment. So yes, 70 years would go by. Uh, they would be uh, allowed to go back into Israel. They would rebuild the walls of defense. They would rebuild the temple. And sacrifices would be made. But but all of the promises God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, uh, all of those promises, uh, of course, were not fulfilled. That's how we know that we go all the way down to the end. Uh, and that, of course, is going to be in at the end of the Great Tribulation when the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth begins. At that point, um, I'm going to go one verse farther, Anonymous, in verse 39. God says, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and for their good of the children after them. Now, what he's going to do, he's going to give them new hearts. Uh, we would say, and this is a, 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 a New Testament construct, but we would say they, they'd be born again. And, and when Jews return to Jesus at the end of the Great Tribulation and then they go into the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, um, it, it is going to be as though um, Jesus were always there. Perfect justice, perfect rule, um, and I love that. And then he goes on to make an everlasting covenant with them. Uh, this is all very, very good news. With Jeremiah, um, he's a little bit easier uh, for uh, for most of us to understand because there's a little bit more chronology, but still, he, he, he goes back and forth between short-term and long-term fulfillment. So that's in the future for it to be completely fulfilled. Good question, Anonymous. And enjoy, Jeremiah. I know it's bleak. I know sometimes it gets a little bit tedious to, to read. Um, I'm enjoying it this time more than any other time that I've ever read it. Uh, it it's, it's more personal to me. And I don't know if that's because I'm getting older, because we're getting closer to the Lord coming. Maybe it's both. Uh, But um, um, Jeremiah, for my money, is the most New Testament, Old Testament prophet. Hope that makes sense. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Here is our next question. This one is sent in from Maverick from our email inbox. Maverick, good to hear from you again. Um, Hello, Pastor Ron. He says, I trust this chronology question regarding Saul and David finds you well. And here's his question. Why did King Saul uh, have the following questions and inquiry in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 55 through 57? Here are the inquiries. Uh, Whose son is this youth? This is after David killed Goliath. Uh, second inquiry was inquire uh, thou those whose son this stripling is. That's verse 56 in 1 Samuel 17. And then he asked directly, whose son are you, young man, in First Samuel chapter 17, verse 57. 
Now, um, if you go back to chapter 16, and, and, and uh, Maverick does this, and I'm not going to take time to read all this, but he's talking about those moments when David was brought in to play the, the lyre or the harp for Saul when Saul was having those attacks of, of evil spirits and David's music would calm him down. So the, the question is, well, he knew who he was, so why is he asking those questions? Well, the answer, I think... Um, is is pretty simple. Um, David, because he'd played the harp for him when he was upset, David had been in his palace. Um, we'd look at that and say, well, how could he not know? But but you need to look more closely at the question. Saul asked whose son David was. And the reason he would ask that is because he had promised a great fortune to any man who defeated Goliath, any man who would go to battle with him and win. And so he's simply following through on his promise. Um, This great fortune uh, awaited the father of the man who killed the giant. It'd be sort of like hitting the lottery in the Old Testament world. Uh, the, the, The man who killed Goliath, his family would be set up for life. And, of course, we know that that happened. Now, there are two significant things in these questions. First, um, Davis, David w- wouldn't let go of his trophy. Remember, he had Goliath's head when he came in. And um, um, that's when David was asked. The trophy was important, not for David. It wasn't ego, but for God. Um, this was David's witness. This was God elevating David to a pedestal in Israel, not just before Saul, but before all of the people. Um, the purpose of this, Maverick, was that God wanted everybody to see that David was his man. Before this moment, he was just an unknown, invisible shepherd. He he wasn't even sun status in the sense that his brothers were there doing the fighting uh, and not David. But now he's David to all the world. Now he's the, the man of God, no longer the obscure little boy despised by his brothers. Um, when your light shines, when you're serving Jesus, God will elevate you into a position of prominence. And this is God introducing David to the world. So it's not that Saul forgot. But remember, Saul had a lot of people uh, around him all the time. He wouldn't necessarily make a connection that David, um, the, the harpist, was the same person uh, that, that that killed Goliath. Um so he's just making sure, I, I've got a reward to give. Whose son are you? And that's exactly what he did. So I hope that makes sense to you, Maverick. Um, I love this chapter. I, I I just love the book of First and Second Samuel. So, so very, very rich. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Kirby from our mobile app. How would Eve have known what evil meant when the serpent said that she would know good and evil? Uh, was the knowledge evil present uh, in the garden prior to the fall? Um, no, the, 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 the knowledge certainly wasn't uh, available to, to Adam and Eve until they ate of the, 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 of the tree. Uh, it was God who said, um, when uh, he said, there's one tree you can't eat. I love the fact that God gave them every other tree. We, we can't imagine the, the magnificence of the Garden of Eden. I got to talk about the Garden of Eden, comparing it a little bit in yesterday's Bible study to the Garden of Gethsemane. But um, everything was given to them. God said, you can have everything out there. And there was one tree. He said, just one tree. Um, and it is the, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up to that point, Kirby, all they knew was good. There was no conscious thought of evil. God wasn't planting the seed. God was planting a tree. I call it a tree of choice. And when he was um, giving them that choice, here's what he was saying. He said, look, I've given you a life. I've promised you a life. You and I can walk together in the cool of the garden and you will know only good all the days of your life. But if you eat that tree, then you will also have the knowledge of evil. And that was the opening for Satan to tempt Eve first. She was the one who was deceived. Adam made the choice of his own free will to rebel against God. But uh, imagine how tempting it was. One of the things I always say here at church when we talk about this tree, 
uh, is it, it was a magnificent tree. Um, it, it the fruit would have been absolutely delicious. Uh, it would have looked so appealing. Um, you know, it, it it seems to me anyway clear that when God warned them not to eat that fruit from that particular tree, that Eve was spending some time kind of checking out that tree, maybe getting a little closer every day. I always tell my church, you know, I, I don't eat anything without smelling it first. And I'm confident that Eve walked over and smelled that fruit and said, oh, that is heavenly. I need to, I need a taste of that fruit. And uh, And that's when she got... Adam, after she took the, the taste and he he plunged into sin with her. I don't know why it is that when God gives us everything, we want the one thing that we can't have. Well, that's exactly what happened. But that was the moment they knew evil. So the presence of evil was not there. The knowledge of evil was not there. But Satan used that one prohibition to bring in doubt. Did God really say And Satan has been doing that from the very, very beginning, just trying to cast doubt on the Word of God. So they would have no concept of evil. If you'd asked Adam or Eve, and believe me, they were the smartest people that had ever been born in their pre-fall state, um, uh, nothing even close. If you'd asked them, what's evil? They would have said, I don't know. They didn't have Google then. What's evil? They wouldn't know. But as soon as they violated God's Word to them, that's when the knowledge of evil began to take over. By the way, that's what cost them their son Abel. Evil came into the world, and it was mom and dad who let it in. Boy, there's a sermon right there, but I won't go into it today. Good question, Kirby. Thanks very, very much. Here is a question from Samuel. He said, how much do we rely on systematic theology in our studies. Samuel, I like this question because I think too often we go looking for systematic theology and then we lay that over the Bible as we study it and try to find, uh, we try to fit what the Bible is saying into the systematic theology that we've chosen. Uh, I don't think we should do that at all. I think we should let Bible study develop our systematic theology. Uh, I have a very... uh, uh, a clear systematic theology, a, a lens through which uh, the scripture can be interpreted. But I've never viewed the scripture through that lens. I've simply let the scripture itself provide that lens for me. I'll give you an example. Uh, if somebody is a Calvinist, and as I think everybody in this, who listens to this program for any length of time knows, I am not a Calvinist, not in the least. Uh, people say, well, then you must be an Arminianist. No, I'm not. The Bible teaches balance. But if I was a Calvinist, I would take that Calvinist systematic theology and lay it over the scriptures and then try to fit the scriptures or interpret the scriptures in light of that systematic theology. And you're going to come with conclusions. You're going to you're going to make the Bible say things that it never says. I'll give you an example. Um, Never once is election in the Bible spoken of in any other context except salvation. And people will say, because they've got this systematic theology uh, that they're convinced of, they'll say, well, well, that means God chooses some for heaven and chooses some for hell. Election is never spoken of in that regard. So uh, I don't think we should rely on it at all. I do think, Samuel, that once we've developed a systematic theology uh, out of the um, our Bible study, uh, then we ought to be fiercely loyal to it. But 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 remember, it's the Scripture that develops that systematic theology. Um, I, I've had people ask me over the years on the program, which systematic theology do do I recommend? And honestly, I don't recommend any. Get one, develop one by reading and studying it yourself. Hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very very much. Let's go to. Let's go to Reuben. Reuben on the line. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Reuben. Thank you. That's good. That's good. I'm uh, I'm uh, reading in Matthew, okay, and I have a question. I wonder if you could uh, if you could uh, explain to me uh, what verse thirty means and. In which chapter? 
Which chapter, Reuben? 11, Matthew 11, and I'm going to start in 28. It says, Come unto me, all, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you tell me exactly what yoke, his yoke is, and what is his burden? <laughs> and also in 29B, it says, uh, lowly, lowly, L-O-W-L-Y, mm-hmm. in heart. What is that, that uh, little... Uh, Good question, Ruben. Thank you very, very much. It's good to hear from you, and I trust that you're doing well uh, also. Um, um, Ruben, this, this, these three verses are so important, and the reason they're important is because this is the only uh, autobiographical statement about Jesus' personality at all. In all of the Bible, we don't know anything about how he looks, and this is the only thing we know about what kind of a man he was in terms of his public persona. Um, when he says, I'm humble and gentle, the NIV says, I'm, I'm gentle, your, your, your translation said lowly, um, Jesus was a gentle man. Uh, he took the low place. He considered others better than himself. Uh, and that he was humble uh, describes his character. And oh, how we should really try to emulate that. A couple of things here. Now, in Matthew, uh, he says, I'm going to go one verse ahead of you. He says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's a statement of fact. And then he issues an invitation, and that's what this is. This is invitation for the people listening to him, and by extension, you and me, to come to Jesus. And here's what he's saying, and I'm going to paraphrase through the whole thing. He says, when you come to me, I will take your heavy loads. I will take your tiredness, your exhaustion. And what I will do is exchange it for rest. Now, Reuben, especially you, with everything that you have been through and the struggles that you have and the way the enemy just pound and pound, this is a place that you ought to just sort of rest in a lot. Um, when you're weary, when, when the devil has been pounding you, when you've got these burdens, your physical health and other things going on, Jesus is saying, run to him and he will be your source of rest. And then he says, take my yoke. A yoke was an agricultural tool. It was it was something if your oxen were plowing, uh, a yoke would keep their heads equal so that they could walk together in a, in a, in a, in a clear path. Um, you know, if you're unequally yoked, if you had a, a yoke would, would normally have two animals together. If one of them was like a chihuahua and the other one was an oxen, well, it wouldn't be easy. The oxen would be pulling them apart. But when you're equally yoked, what you've got is um, what it looks like to walk with Jesus. That's why he says, take my yoke and learn from me. And then he says, here's his yoke. I'm gentle or lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Reuben, for you personally, but for everybody else listening, I don't want to diminish the struggles that we have. Some of us go through really difficult things. But Jesus said, if we'll exchange our difficult burdens in this life for his easy burden, then we can walk with rest. We can walk in the freedom of that easy burden because Jesus is, is exchanging burdens with us. Now, if I go more to the point in the context of this passage of Scripture, we've got Jesus who's been proclaiming the law from chapter 5, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the law. He's talking about getting to heaven apart from him. He's talking about uh, the, the, the approach of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, 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 the leaders of Israel. And he's saying they put burdens on people that, that they themselves can't carry. Jesus is saying, my burden is light. 
Now, we have a better opportunity to understand that as, as New Testament Christians than they did. But here's the real key, because we understand what grace is. Grace is easy. It's a free gift. And when we walk in the grace, first the grace that saves, but then the grace that lives, Jesus says, that's my easy and light burden. And I'll give that to you. And you give me all the problems that you're carrying. And things will be better for you. Things will be easier for you. And, you know, when I say all the time, Reuben, just be with Jesus, the, the, the real value of that is, is when we find ourselves overwhelmed, whatever it is we're going through, then all we've got to do is remember to fight through that, lay those burdens down at Jesus' feet, say, Lord, you can carry these. These will, these will break me. And and I want to walk with you, I want to walk for you, and I want to walk in a manner that will bring you glory. This is such a wonderful promise. And um, Reuben, it's, it works. You give your burdens to Jesus, he'll give you a much easier way to go. Hey, thanks for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's take a phone call from Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Pastor Ron. I, um, you know, yesterday was such a vibrant study. It, it it was just riveting. It was so good. When you were talking about the angels coming to uh, minister to Jesus in the garden when he was praying, it got me thinking about the angels in heaven. If the ones, if they're still there, the, the ones that saw Lucifer fall, if all those angels are still up there, and what they must have been going through and thinking about watching what was going on with Jesus on earth and watching him get crucified, mm. what, what could have been going through through their, their thoughts. But then I started to think about the fact that is all of heaven out of uh, space and time? And if they would have known and gone, whew, everything's going to be okay because this is what happens in the future, but then I thought about the fact, this is really a big rabbit hole here, but then I really thought about the fact that only God knows the time that that, uh, that, that he's going to come back. So anyways, th- this is all the stuff that's been running around in my brain since yesterday. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going to get off the phone and listen to your response. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. God bless you. You know, I love Cindy so much because she's the only one that that thinks like me. I think about these things. I'm going to rephrase your question a little bit about the angels, Cindy. You know, I think about those 12 legions of angels. Jesus said, don't you know I have 12 legions of angels at, at my beck and call? All I have to do is call them. And I'm thinking as the angels in heaven are watching Jesus be beaten and crucified, I mean, they're chomping at the bit. I mean, they're ready to go. Call us. Just call us. They won't do anything apart from being obedient. So they're waiting for Jesus to call. But when he doesn't call, imagine how in awe they are um, when the reason for his obedience is being revealed to them. That is an amazing thing to think about. You know, we know that angels are very curious. Uh, They long to look into things concerning grace on earth. Um, uh, they don't have um, uh, knowledge of everything. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not uh, clued in on uh, prophecy the way we might think an angel is. Um, so so I, think, I think the angels are just utterly in awe of everything that God does. And, um, you know, we know that in the book of Revelation, there'll be silence in heaven for a half an hour. I wonder 
what it was like. The, the, the angels um, that were in that angelic choir when Jesus was born. I wonder what those angels were thinking when, in fact, Jesus was being murdered. And yet, when God reveals the mysteries, when God reveals the secrets to them, uh, I, I can I can picture in my mind them falling on their faces before God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and uh, you know, I think angels, just like we will be uh, when we're in heaven, I think they're learning things each and every day. They're amazed by his grace. They're amazed by his love. And uh, they had to be amazed by the fact that God, whom they worshipped before his birth, was giving his life for the people he loved. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thought. Cindy, thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Anthony. He wants to know, is inerrancy, that's inerrancy of the scriptures, is inerrancy a critical doctrine for rightly dividing the Bible? Um, Yes, I mean, without understanding that the Bible is inerrant. Uh, It is without error, literally. Uh, It is consistent. There are no contradictions. Anthony, without understanding that, uh, it is impossible to rightly divide the Word of God because if, in fact, the Bible is not inerrant, you have no Word of God and it's open to anyone's interpretation. So, um, yes, inerrancy is a critical doctrine for rightly dividing the Bible, uh, even though today uh, it is aggressively being denied. Oh, you don't have to have a, an inerrant Bible. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, you don't take it literally. Um, those people, typically, Anthony, they don't care about what the Bible says. They care more about letting it say what they want it to say and justifying any kind of lifestyle that they want to live. So, yes, inerrancy is a critical doctrine for studying the Bible. Uh, You have to have confidence in the Word. Uh, You have to have confidence in its consistency Um, in, in the last week. Um, uh, programs we, we've had we've had several questions about contradictions in the Bible and if there are contradictions in the Bible then we don't have the word of God it's that simple so Anthony the answer to your question is yes and once you um, discover that the Bible is perfect uh, that the spirit bears witness that it is without error and you can depend on it you hold on to it for dear life because uh, our Bible is being attacked Uh, like at no other time in my 31 years with the Lord, and I'm sure before that, at least in this country. Uh, And I also believe, Anthony, that there is a a spirit of deception, a lying spirit that's already been sent out. And personally, I believe that we have begun the the great falling away um, that that we, we, we read about in the Bible before the unveiling or the revealing, rather, of the Antichrist. So, um, yes, inerrancy is a critical doctrine to every person in this audience. You have got to do your your homework and make a decision about whether or not this really is the Word of God or not. And if it is the Word of God, then we believe it, we hold on to it, and we can't be shaken from it. If it's not then the reality is we can do anything we want and make it say anything we want. Here is a caller from San Antonio, Raul, on line one. Raul, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Papa Ron, this is Raul. I like I promise I'll give you a call about, about this question. I don't know if you're Thank you. Pastor Ron, uh, so, sometimes I, I listen to some some of the preachers about about you know sometimes I, I listen to what they preach about it and I, and I heard I'm not gonna say about the about what preacher I heard but I, um, some of them uh, don't they say that the signs uh, uh, are a gift that the spirit gives us but they said that that they're no longer available in, mm-hmm. for now and and the pastor said. Uh, this this verses from First Corinthians chapter thirteen verses eight to ten, and I'm gonna read it for you. Okay. Love never fails, but whether they are prophecies, they will fail. With whether they are tongues, they will cease. When there is knowledge, it will vanish away. 
For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. What do you think about that, Pastor? I believe, Thank you, I, I believe in the of the Spirit, but I want to know your <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Uh, Raul is one of my translators, and I love him to death. He and Linda have been with me for a very, very long time. Uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, this is lazy Bible exegesis. In fact, it's not even exegesis. It's eisegesis. When that which is perfect is come, and they will say, and we're talking about cessationists, and cessationists believe that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. God doesn't work the way he did before any longer. Um, and they say, well, that which is perfect is the Bible. Well, well, practically, Raul, there's no way that they had any understanding of a, a book um, like we do, the Bible. Uh, it was just then being written. Um, letters had been circulating, but very few people had an understanding that was Scripture. Uh, there certainly hadn't been any councils to, to codify the Scriptures and, and, and assign to them inerrancy status. So it was impossible to, for them to understand that God was going to communicate um, uh, to them uh, with this full revelation of of uh, God's Word. We call it the New Testament. So clearly, what Paul is talking about is that which is perfect will come. That's when Jesus returns. Now, one of the frustrating things for me on this, and, and I'll name some of these guys um, because I admire them so much and admire their ministries. J. Vernon McGee, uh, he's a giant of our faith. I think an under rated giant of our faith. I mean, think about how God has honored his heart and his ministry so many years after his death. People are still getting saved every day with that crazy uh, West Texas voice. And um, so, so he's, a, he's a gifted Bible teacher and brilliant, by the way. He doesn't sound smart, but he really, really is. And yet, uh, he believed that the gifts of the Spirit stopped. Charles Swindoll is another one. Um, uh, when I got saved, I, I was—I uh, listened to Chuck Swindoll. Uh, he was in Fullerton at, at an EV Free Church, and and he was and remains a gifted teacher now that he's moved back here to Texas. Uh, John MacArthur is another one. John MacArthur, uh, God has used these men in such wonderful ways um, that that. Uh, it's frustrating to me that they they suspend sort of their rules for exegeting the Bible, the New Testament, when it comes to this issue. And we just jump to a conclusion. Now, the question is, why would they do it? And here's uh, what I believe to be true. I think there are some people who are so angry at the abuses of the Spirit which are everywhere. You can go to these crazy charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches and people running around doing crazy things and blaming it on the Holy Spirit. And I think it's so distasteful to them that they create a theology that says, well, uh, that's crazy, that's being abused, so those gifts don't happen today. Uh, and it's simply not true. If you read the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, um, it's we know in part uh, now, but then we will know in full. Well, we don't know in full yet. Uh, e even when we have our Bible, um, it's a perfect word, but it's interpreted through imperfect hearts and minds. Uh, that's why there's so many different opinions and views on what it says. Uh, but but that which is perfect is a reference to Jesus. It's not a reference to the Word of God at all. Uh, we have to remember the timeline, when the Bible was written, when these words or these letters were written, and um, um, between that and the time that the, the Bible was actually uh, recognized as being God's Word. So um, there's no place where the Bible says that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. Uh, and to the contrary, when he's writing to the churches in Corinth in particular, uh, he indicates that the gifts of the Spirit are operating in the church. They're being abused, but they're operating in the church. And um, and that indicates very clearly that the gifts are being used. Let me also say this, Raul. Um, there are some gifts that seem to have stopped, especially for those of us in the West. 
Um, you know, when Jesus would uh, cleanse lepers, he'd cast out demons, he would heal the, the, the sick, and, and, and the lame would be able to walk. And, and, and clearly, if you're honest, those miracles are noticeably absent from our world. Because they're sign gifts, and the sign points to something, a sign points to Jesus. Well, here in the West, everybody knows about Jesus. We don't need signs. We don't need miracles to know about Jesus. And yet there are still some parts of the world where people, in order to be saved, are risking their lives. In in Muslim countries, uh, in particular, to convert to Christianity would be a death sentence. And if somebody is going to take that risk... They need to know, and God still does the same kind of miracles that he did that we read about in the book of Acts. So in some parts of the world, those sign gifts are there. Uh, I have seen miraculous gifts of the Spirit, and I'm talking about real ones, not the phony stuff that we see on Christian TV, but real, real miracles. But they're few and far between. We try to make them so ordinary that they're not miraculous at all. So the gifts of the Spirit still function today. One final comment, Raul. Uh, the gift of prophecy, uh, it still functions today, even though the office of a prophet is closed. Exercising the gift of prophecy does not make one a prophet in the, the Old Testament sense. Um, it's the fourth telling of God's Word. And we exercise that gift when the Bible is being taught. We exercise that gift um, when we do afterglows here at Calvary Chapel. So it's just one of those things that we need to recognize. Um, um, even giants like John MacArthur and Charles Swindoll and J. Vernon McGee uh, certainly aren't inerrant or they're, they're, they're certainly fallible when it comes to their own interpretation. And it's really formed by the things that we we like or don't like, and that was the case in theirs. If the Bible says the gifts of the Spirit cease, then they cease, but that's not what it says at all. Good question, Roel. Thank you very, very much. Daniel has an interesting question. I've never thought of it until I saw your question, Daniel. Uh, He says, what is the moral thing to do regarding forgiven student loans? Now, the way the question is presented, Daniel, I am uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that you you have a student loan that can be forgiven and yet you're struggling with, well, you borrowed the money and you need to pay it back. Um, I think the right thing to do if they're going to forgive your loan is to do it. Now, obviously, I'm going to say uh, from the other side of my mouth here, and I hope you understand this is without any hypocrisy, uh, I, I think this is a horrible thing to do. I think it's a horrible precedent to set. I think because of the ease of student loans, um, the price of college has gotten so expensive, uh, these federally insured government loans. Uh, I, I, th- I think this is a ploy to buy votes, nothing more uh, and nothing less. Um, but if you have a student loan and the government is going to forgive it, then you say thank you. And you don't feel at all about forgiveness is a good thing, just like you don't have to, to feel bad about your sins anymore because God took care of them. Um, I think now uh, with your with your student loan debt that's going to be forgiven, um, you just sort of wash your hands of it and move on, and then you can use the money that you're paying student loans with. You can use that money to honor the Lord. So, Daniel, I hope that um, is the right interpretation of your question, but, uh, but I, I, if they're going to forgive it, enjoy it. Count it as a blessing uh, in your life. Let's go to Matthew on line one from Cibolo. Matthew, you're on the air. Thanks for holding. Hey, Papa Ron. Can you hear me? I can hear you well. Thank you, Matthew. All right, Allison. I hope you're having a great day. Uh, just want to call on, I was actually doing some study on the gifts this morning. And uh, as, you know, Brother Raul was talking about, um, and I had a conversation with a family member about gifts and, you know, and the Lord wants to use our gifts to edify the church. And, mm-hmm. and um and I was asking her, like, what is her gift? And she said the gift of giving money. And mm-hmm. and so I didn't ask her exactly how much she gave, but she said, like, hundreds of dollars every month. But um, I was thinking, you know, is that considered a gift of uh, a gift of giving, or how can I articulate that conversation on what are gifts of, of uh, 
of uh, giving. And if you can kind of elaborate on what that means, if it's not even monetary, it might be other things. But okay, that's all I have, Papa. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Um, you know, now I, I don't want the word I'm going to use now to cause anybody to stumble, but giving is an obligation. We owe God everything because he gave everything for us. So it is a response. And when we are giving, now if we're giving in reasonable parameters, you said hundreds of dollars a month, um, um, that would only be the gift of giving if in fact she was giving um, a, a sizable portion of her income because she trusted God and she was doing it with a cheerful heart. Um, but if you're just giving... You know, you go to church and they pass an offering uh, and you give and it's it's um, uh, just just a normal amount that people give, whether it's 10 percent or 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 whatever else you you give to the Lord. Uh, that's not necessarily the gift of giving. Um, that's that's something that we ought to do uh, because we owe God everything. Now, the gift of giving, Jesus pointed out a widow who gave two tiny little mites, literally nothing, a fraction of a penny in our time. And God said she had the gift of giving because she gave everything she had. Out of her poverty, she gave everything she had. She walked away from that temple treasury with only God to depend on for a meal that night or a place to lay her head the next morning. Um, That's the gift of giving. And typically, Matthew, when people have the gift of giving, um, they're people that have proven to God that they can be counted trustworthy with the gifts that God has given them. They understand that everything they have comes from God and belongs to God. And that's the gift of giving. Um, um, again, it's not a percentage of your income. It's just somebody who says, look, Lord, it's your money. What do you want me to do with it? That's what the gift of giving is all about. Um, but if it's just a normal giving, I wouldn't consider that a spiritual gift uh, at all. Um, and and I think we can give. Now, there are ways to give beyond money. You can give your time. Uh, if she's serving in the church, then, then she probably has the gift of giving. If she is uh, giving her talent, if she's using the gifts that God has given her to serve others, then, um, then, then that, that's the gift of giving. It's just in a, in a different way. So I think that's really important for us to consider. You said something, Matthew, when you asked the question that that I think we all need to remember is that we use our gifts, not for us, not to be noticed. We use our gifts for one thing and one thing only, and that's to glorify God. We don't expect to get anything back. We don't do it because people are going to notice how spiritual or how anointed we are. We serve the Lord. We give because he gave everything for us. And every gift from heaven, every gift of the Holy Spirit has one purpose, and that is to edify other people. And thus God gets glory. Great question. Thank you, Matthew, very, very much. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor, what is the best way to quickly judge whether or not a particular teacher or author is orthodox or heretical? Um, you know, if, if, to do it quickly, there's a couple of places I always go. I'll instantly, immediately go to Genesis. I want to see what they say about Genesis. Um, if, if they believe that the first 10 chapters of Genesis are literal and to be be, be understood literally, then I know that generally speaking, that is going to be a trustworthy commentator. Uh, if they allegorize Genesis, or if, they're, uh, if they don't believe just very specifically that Adam and Eve were the first two people on earth, uh, if they don't believe that, then I won't go any farther. You know, Anonymous, when I was a new Christian, um, I did all my studying. There was a, a school of theology in Claremont, California. I didn't know liberal from conservative at that point. I'm just a, a new believer. Turns out it's the most liberal school of theology we have in our country. And I would um, um, go and spend been all day there. And um, I would find books and I'd just read something. And there'd be something in my spirit said, no, that's not right. I'll give you an example. Uh, with with uh, uh, looking at commentaries on Isaiah, 
I'd pick up commentaries that said Isaiah was written by three different authors. There'd be um, Deuteri-Isaiah, one Isaiah, Deuteri-Isaiah, and, 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 and a third author. And um, um, I knew that couldn't be right. And so I learned discernment very, very quickly. Uh, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, especially 9 and 11. You can very quickly go to those chapters and um, uh, and, and you can figure out where the author is coming from. So I, I think it's important to go through the process of learning to be discerning, um, but um, you've you got to know whether somebody's uh, orthodox or heretical. Um, what do they believe about Genesis? Um, what do they believe about... Uh, salvation. There's just so many good things. Good, good question, Anonymous. Let me, before we sign off, let me go back to um, um, Matthew's question a moment ago. Um, read books. You know, when I first was saved, I, I, I didn't understand the gifts of the Spirit because I was going to churches that were teaching different things. And so I read everything that I could. Let me suggest for those of you who are, are, are concerned about the gifts of the Spirit, uh, Gordon Fee has a commentary on 1 Corinthians that is probably the standard. And um, uh, you can read his commentaries on uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And I, I, you're in really, really solid ground. It's not easy reading, but it's really, really good stuff. Martin Lloyd-Jones also has some good stuff on the gifts of the Spirit, especially in his commentary on Ephesians. So these are really, really good things and and uh, wonderful tools for you to use. But, but study. I mean, really, really work these things out for yourself. That time I had as a new Christian is time that I cherish because of the work that God did. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Remember, Women's and Youth Bible Studies at 7 o'clock. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.